You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, RPA is proud to present Aaron's Horror Show with Aaron Frail. This is Jason Witter, author, illustrator of Tiniest Vampire and Monsters Eating Ice Cream, and you are listening to Aaron's Horror Show. Welcome to Aaron's Horror Show. I'm your host, Aaron Frail. On Aaron's Horror Show, we're going to go ahead and read some horror fiction and talk about horror in all its forms, books, movies, you name it. If you want to go ahead and get a hold of the show, you can go ahead and contact Aaron's Horror Show at Gmail or Aaron Horror Show on Twitter or Aaron's Horror Show on Facebook. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Thank you for coming to Aaron's Horror Show, and I'm your host, Aaron Frail. I have a very special guest with me today. You know, I always thought it would be fun for you guys to hear from a film critic. I know I've interviewed a lot of filmmakers on the show, but I've never actually, you know, interviewed somebody from an audience perspective. So I have with me today Steve Silver, and Steve Silver is by profession an attorney, but he has always been a film buff for over 50 years, during which time he has usually seen some 200 to 300 movies a year. He has a library of over 3,000 movie titles on DVD or video. Steve also has some hands-on experience in the industry as well, having appeared as an extra in a Chuck Norris movie and a contestant on the network version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire with Regis Philman winning 32000 for his efforts. He currently operates a website, www.silverscreenvideos.com, where he posts most of his reviews of all the current releases, and he is one of the top 2,000 reviewers on Amazon. All right, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Aaron. I'm glad you had me. I just want to say this is my first podcast, so I may be a little bit nervous, so please bear with me. Oh, that's okay. Everyone had to start somewhere, and, you know, our RPA listeners, you're on the Real Paranormal Activity Network, they are a great bunch of, of listeners. They're a very welcoming crowd, so they're they're definitely going to welcome you here today. So, uh, yeah, you don't any have anything to, to worry about. So, I think I want to go ahead and start with your origin story. I always like to you know, see where you came from. Was it a radioactive spider? Was it training with some ninjas on a mountaintop? Uh, you know, what made the Steve Silver of today? Uh, where where'd you come from? Well, I, um, the answer of both of those questions is no, but uh, I started uh, watching and following films at a very early age. Uh, in fact, I still remember some plots for some movies uh, from back in the 1950s. Uh, and one of the things that really surprised me once I started watching movies on video and DVD would be to watch 
watch a vintage film from the 50s or 60s and uh, realize that I, I still remembered a lot of the plot points from that movie. Uh, my, my parents would usually go to two to three movies a week, and um, uh, once I got old enough to start going around myself, I would go to to a number of them on my own, and uh, when I went off to college, I attended Georgia Tech, and then uh, University of Florida Law School, I, I kept that up. Uh, uh, very often, I would find places that would get me student pricing, and even after I wasn't a student anymore, they would take pity on me and let me in at cheaper prices, so help the budget along a bit. Um, and oh, yeah. <laughs> along, with, <laughs> along with the current movies, uh, I started. Uh, uh, I, I got interested in the older films, the ones that, some cases, I had seen on on TV, and in some cases, uh, just heard about and went to some of. Uh, uh, they used to have these uh, retrospective theaters in big cities like Atlanta, and they would show uh, usually a double feature, sometimes a triple feature, uh, rotate two or three uh, a week, and they would be on a similar theme, like you might, uh, uh, in horror, get you know three vintage Dracula movies, or you might uh, uh, get you know, three Humphrey Bogart movies, uh, or two or three, and you could go in, and a lot of times I'd spend four or five hours uh, get my fill on that. Of course, once movies started coming out on video, uh, those things pretty much went away, but uh, I started collecting those. Uh, and for a while, I had a business where I actually sold uh, old uh, movies on video and DVD. Uh, what I found out was that there actually was a market for uh, that a lot of movies would come out one time on a VHS and would go into video stores, and then they would never be released again because there wasn't really a demand in the general public for these these older films. Yeah. Uh, but I would find that uh, they would be available, pawn shops, uh, flea markets, and so forth, and you could pick some of them up very cheaply, and then get on places like eBay and mm -hmm. find that people would pay, you know, fifty, hundred, hundred and fifty dollars for a movie that I got for a dollar at a flea market. So <laughs> Oh yeah. No, when I when I was back in college a friend of mine and, and I we we used to go and buy books at flea markets, you know, or, or garage sales. We just you know, here's a dollar, we'll take all the books you have and most people would do it because they just want to get rid of them and we would trade them in for store credit and find the ones that we know are collectible and put them up on eBay and get, you know, maybe $80 for a $5 investment. It was not a bad gig, but a lot of work in it, you know? Yeah, it was. And I said, for a while I made money off of it, but, uh, uh, you know, markets changed and when went over from video to DVD, it pretty much blasted a big hole in what I was doing then obviously yeah. with the advent of streaming, uh, oh, yeah. everything just totally went away. So oh, yeah, the same yeah. thing happened to me as uh, happened to Blockbuster, except it wasn't quite as painful a lesson for me. And that's where yeah, my website yeah. began. 
was I used that to uh, market uh, my merchandise on on eBay and so forth. And then when that went away, I kept the domain name and gradually switched it over to uh, the film reviews and articles and commentary, which unfortunately there's not as much of the latter categories as I would like, uh, since yeah. I do still work full time, but, uh, uh, I'm keeping going on, on updating and renovating the site, so. So, kind of talking about the site a little bit, you know, I've, I've read your reviews and I, I find your reviews to be really in depth and really just, just, you look at everything about, you know, the film and I, I really like your, your style because you really just, leave no stone unturned. So when you review a movie, what's your process? How do you how do you sit down and and, you know, write what I call an epic review of a film because, you know, you see a lot of people when they're reviewing, they maybe give it a paragraph or a couple sentences, but you really, you know, go into it and really get some nice good detail. Well, I I do some background research on almost all the films. Uh yes, you know, I am familiar but with them, but usually there's some things that I either don't know or have overlooked or forgotten and bring up uh, about the uh, the actors, the directors, so forth on that, and then try to lay out <coughs> first a reasonably decent uh, plot synopsis on these, and then kind of go into detail on what I liked and what I didn't like. And sometimes not, I'll go not so much on a, a movie itself, but on other films that this reminded me of and how they came to be and how this one was better or worse than the others. So it's not always strictly a review, but it's it's more of a commentary and uh you know i try to i try to aim at about a thousand words on these and usually keep them about that uh which i think is enough to get things in depth uh, uh without you know totally boring people yeah i mean that's a that's a hefty amount of writing you know as, as a as a you know part time writer myself i uh i know it can be tough to pump out a thousand words and you know how how do you how do you do it? How do you keep up the the pace that you go at? Uh, well, again, a lot of it is uh, well. Two things is I think about it a lot before I write, and uh, tend to write fairly quickly. And I spend a lot of uh, late nights uh, or early mornings, as the case may be, uh, writing and revising. Uh, usually. Um, I've actually been a professional writer at one point, uh, writing textbooks, and so I've got a fairly good uh, uh, background in grammar and style, so I don't need uh, most of the time to do a lot of uh, re-editing and things. And can go oh, early. okay. But it's just a matter of really discipline, and you have to sit down, and, uh, and I think that's the biggest problem that all writers face is uh you know saying i'm going to sit down and and i face the same thing that i'm actually going to start cranking things out and not go back and look at my facebook page or look at the boss 
podcasts and all these other things and kill a half an hour doing that. It's it's uh, just a matter of really disciplining yourself and, you know, one word, one sentence, one paragraph after another. Oh, yeah. No, I completely agree with that. Whenever I, I sit down and write, I have a, a, a minimum point that I want to do every day, you know, and I just make sure that I keep that up daily because if I don't, that's when the, you know, Facebook and <laughs> and the Internet start to become a, you know, they get in the way of that. Yeah, and, and let me make a statement about your writing is, um, uh, I know people who haven't may heard, but uh, Aaron is one of the more inventive science fiction writers around, and he comes up with a heck of a lot of very interesting storylines, and uh, I really think one of his most recent books uh, called Orion, which is somewhat similar to the Groundhog Day series of films about uh, People reliving the same day over and over again until they get it right uh, is really a very good take on take on that. And anyone out there listening, I highly recommend Orion. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Actually, I, I'm reading a little bit of Orion here and there in this podcast, but I, I had started reading another book before Orion, so I want to finish that one and then I'll kind of <laughs> give the listeners Orion, but. Uh, as, as I always tell folks that I have most of my stuff on audiobooks, so if they want to hear a much better actor than me, they <laughs> they can <laughs> they can get that. But yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, I kind of want to find out, uh, you know. So you mentioned that you 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 went to the old you know movies and you're talking you know Dracula. I kind of curious about what your your favorite monster movies of those old uh, '50s movies are. Like like what. Uh, not just monster movies, but horror movies in general. Like, you don't necessarily have to say what your favorite one is, because, you know, it's sometimes hard when someone puts you on the spot to pick a favorite. But, you know, what are what are some good ones, some more memorable ones for you? Well, uh, I will tell you that uh, you know, I figure you might ask that, and I will say uh, my two all-time favorite horror movies one, a lot of people don't classify that as a horror movie, but I think it's in large part one is Jaws, and the other is John Carpenter's The Thing. And oh, both of, two very good movies, yeah. And both of those I highly enjoy, and the thing about The Thing is when I was growing up, uh one of the movies I did see uh, was the 50s version of the thing, which didn't strike me as being all that memorable. But we used to have uh, something on Saturday afternoons called Theater X, which was cheesy horror movies from the 50s. And since we only had a black and white TV, they were all in black and white. And I guess most of them probably were anyway. And I watched those, and most of them were kind of laughable, but there were one that, that scared the daylights out of me. Uh, that was probably nine or ten when I saw it, but gave me nightmares after that. Was one of the ver? I later figured it out because I started in the middle. Was one of yeah. the versions of Donovan's Brain, which. For those people who are unaware, and uh, it's been filmed under several different names, 
It's about uh, a dead gangster who, from the grave, starts to take over uh, another person, and uh, when he takes over the other person, he uh, wreaks revenge uh, for people that wronged him. And there was one habit that the gangster had that he would roll a coin around in his fingers in a particular manner. That was his, you know, nervous habit. And when the guy who's the hero of the story uh, took over, was taken over, he started imitating the same thing. And what scared me was the fact that I honestly thought that someone might take me over and, you know, it uh, would be some dead gangster or somebody, and I wouldn't be myself anymore. And that gave me nightmares for a long time. And movies that are based on things like that uh, have always resonated with me. And that's one of the the, the thing why it uh, the Carpenter version is so memorable is because a large part of it is, are people people or are these something else? And throughout the whole movie, everybody is not sure who's human and who's not. And that just builds and builds and builds and really creeps people out, and it, it creeped me out. And then, of course, when the everything hits the fan and the special effects really start, uh, it's very uh, effective. And I have to say, you know, that one really, you know, even though I was a lot older when I saw it, it did get to me. And I thought it was very excellently done and certainly one of the best horror films of all time. Uh, and oh, I wow. And Jaws are one of my, are, are probably my two favorites. Yeah, wow. I, I don't think I've heard of Donovan's Brain. That, that sounds like a really interesting, intriguing movie. That That actually, you know... Uh, it, yeah, it, it, it was it was a book, it was a novel, and it's been filmed a number of times. And the the, the main version of it was a nineteen. I'm I'm cheating here by looking it up, but it was yeah. a 1953 version with Lou Ayres. That may very well be the one that uh, that I saw, and there was a an earlier version in the 40s that uh, was under another name, which uh, 1944 version, The Lady and the Monster, and that one was actually with uh, Eric von Stroheim. I don't think that was the version I saw. I think I saw the Lou Ayers version. But for a 50s horror movie, I thought those were, at least whichever one I saw, and I don't remember, it it was pretty creepy. Yeah, yeah. And I, let's switch to Jaws really quick, because I think one of the things that I, I read about Jaws that I, I find kind of intriguing was the fact that, that Spielberg didn't really have a whole lot of money making that film. And so a lot of the, the shots that we find most terrifying or most brilliant about the movie are just solutions that he was thinking of uh, in, in the process of making that film, you know, like the the – the point of view of the the shark coming up against you know coming <laughs> the per, against the girl who's swimming in the water and only seeing a little bit of the shark and not the whole thing you know like a lot of those uh 
you know, stuff that he made, I heard, was just because he didn't have the money. Yeah, they didn't have the budget. They had a mechanical shark, and it didn't work right for a long time. So they had to shoot around it. And, again, uh, very often, especially in horror, what you don't see is scarier than what you do see. And uh, Alfred Hitchcock told the, the famous story about, uh, you know, if you show somebody placing a bomb someplace and the bomb blows up, you know, wow, that's, you know, that's scary. That's not scary, but that's horrifying for a few seconds. But, you know, if you keep it there and you build the suspense, is it going to go off? Are people going to be there? Will someone stop it in time? You know, that's what really gets people on edge. It's it's the not knowing part, the not seeing part, and a lot of that happened in, in Jaws. And back when I saw Jaws in the theater for the first time, uh, it, it was a different, again, era of movie making. Uh, I lived in Orlando, Florida, and there were a fairly small number of theaters in town, and Jaws was playing for in one or two theaters and it kept selling out and selling out and selling out and finally I went probably about three weeks into the run and matinee show and wound up sitting in about the third row oh wow and uh, that, that I mean that's how the kind of crowds you had back then uh, because you have a town where movies will only be playing at one or two theaters and a good movie like like jaws or you know would would play for for months on end and i remember that the the big horror moment the first one uh, when roy scheider is chumming the the fish and mumbling about you know how he doesn't like that and all of a sudden the shark appears that there was uh, a very, very large woman sitting in the seat next to me, and the next thing I know, she's like in my seat. She jumped out (laughs) of her seat. She was so scared of that. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, I I had a similar experience, but it was, well, it it was this blind date that I was on, and... uh, you know, we we went to dinner and we didn't really hit it off very well. Like we had very little in common and not much to talk about. And I had even called a friend in the bathroom to like bail me out of it, but no one, you know, returned my call. So we ended up seeing Signs, the M Night Shyamalan movie, and that's a scary movie. And and she kept jumping, you know, <laughs> into my seat even though the date wasn't going very well. So it's a very kind of awkward. <laughs> situation you know well this was a perfect stranger this wasn't my date so uh, oh <laughs> yeah so it was, yeah uh, it was even more awkward because you didn't really know <laughs> the person that's <laughs> I, on your no life. i didn't but i got to know her more than i wanted to in about two <laughs> seconds yep yeah yeah so uh you know i i want to kind of you know so you know we we did you know, we are definitely, it's good we're talking about horror movies, but I also want to hear just more about some, you know, because you, you don't just do horror movies. You you do 
pretty much any film. So go ahead and go through some of your just your favorites of all time. You know, maybe movies, maybe actors. Let's kind of hear what what you really appreciate in film. Well, I uh, you know I enjoy quality filmmaking, and obviously uh, uh, some of my favorites are some of the best. Uh, you know about. Uh, Obviously, things like Casablanca, The Godfather, and so forth. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I will tell you one, and is is another one that didn't, you know, isn't at that level, but which really got to me uh, because it surprised the daylights out of me. First time I saw it was Rosemary's Baby. And oh yes. The reason why is that I'm sure if you've gone to any movie in the last 10 years, by the time you've seen the trailer, you know exactly what's going to happen because they give you in three minutes the entire movie. Uh-huh. Uh, but back then they didn't do that. Back then there were a lot of what they called teasers, which literally were teasers, uh, maybe 30 seconds or so, uh, enough to... Uh, supposedly pique your interest, tell you who was in it, who was the director, and so forth, but not give anything away. And I had not read the book that it was based on. I knew nothing about it. All I know is there were posters which had a picture of a of a baby stroller, and it said, "Pray for Rosemary's baby." And I knew that Mia Farrow was had been Frank Sinatra's girlfriend. And I was under the impression that this was going to be some kind of uh, melodrama about her having a kid uh, or not having a kid or whatever. And it was an R-rated film, which at the time the R-rated films were kind of new and was usually promised some goodies in them for high school-aged kids who weren't used to seeing naked people on screen. Uh, yeah, so I said, yeah. wow, this is a great idea. And then I, I started into it, and I said, what kind of movie is this? <laughs> and it just just totally, you know, blew me away that as it went on and on. And, you know, it's, it's just an excellently constructed film. And, of course, uh, Roman Polanski, who had his own share of legal difficulties after that. Uh, yeah. was at its best, but it's, it's very hard to, you know, put a movie together that that's done as well as that. And a large part of it, and I think that uh, one of the things that people kind of miss out in horror movies is that some of the very good ones are actual really good mysteries. And mm-hmm. it's not... Uh, uh, it's not just some very large guy with an axe or a chainsaw chasing people around, but it's getting to the bottom of what's going on. You know, are there really ghosts there? Uh, is somebody there not who he or she is supposed to be? How does this work? And unraveling that is a large part of uh, the suspense and what makes a film creepy and uh, with Rosemary's Baby, that was done extremely well. Oh, yeah. No, that's totally what I appreciate is the, the mystery part of the film. I totally agree. Like, I think one of the intriguing things about a good horror movie is 
the fact that, you know, you don't see everything or don't understand everything all at once, you know, you don't, it's not as simple as they make it seem. Like one of the, one of the movies that I, I really like is The Bring. And uh, I think one of the, the scariest moments in film for me is uh, that scene where the, the girl kind of jumps out of the TV and at the point that she does it, you think that the problem has already been taken care of, that the mystery has been solved, you know? So I think it makes it even even more effective because you're you you know you think it's over but it's not you know. Oh yeah, I, I, I said I think that the mystery angle is a large part of what makes. Uh, and you know, even go back to the original Dracula, which of course by now there's no mystery to it. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, part of it was you know figuring out who these people were. Mm-hmm. And, of course, obviously now we well know who they are, but back then, uh, you know, what the the main characters, the heroes uh, go through is an attempt to figure that out. And mm-hmm. that's part of uh, what makes it creepy. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. What, what do you think about the Francis Ford Coppola one uh that came out pretty recently with uh uh I think Harker was played by uh Keanu Reeves and, and Mina was Winona Ryder, I believe. Uh, I think that Keanu Reeves makes a good Bill and Ted. <laughs> That's funny. I'm not sure which one he is, but uh, he he makes a good Bill and Ted. And I will say uh, that again, it's not one that's seen very often, but my think that the best version of Dracula on film that I've ever seen is the one in the late seventies with Frank Langella and Laurence Olivier. I think that's uh, oh the best yeah film version of, of Dracula. And, well, what about uh, again? It's one that's not not as common, uh, yeah. But it's it's well worth uh, seeking. For people who are interested in that, and what, about, what people don't realize back then was Frank Langella was a strikingly handsome actor back then, and uh, you know, one of the best-looking actors around. Even though he didn't do all that much work, so he was really one of the first actors playing Dracula who really captured the sex appeal of it. Uh, the mm-hmm. way obviously Bela Lugosi never could. Yeah, yeah, that is kind of interesting because Bela Lugosi, I felt, was like a a, a a monster in in a way. He was good at the monster, but I think, you know, when you talk about the sex appeal of vampires, I feel that that is why they endure, you know, like why we, we still get vampire movies cycling every every couple years, you know, why why... You see interview with a vampire, and then years later we get Twilight and stuff like that. It's it's never the the sort of hideous fiend, but more the the sexy vampire <laughs> that people keep coming back to see. You know? Oh yeah, and if you I mean I know uh, if you uh, I read a lot of self published fiction on uh, on Amazon and. The number of Twilight clones that are there are like number in the thousands. 
One of the, that and zombies are just the most popular horror genres uh, there, and you can uh, you could probably read one of those a day for the next ten thousand years. Oh yeah, if you like books with guys with abs on the cover, then uh, <laughs> you can find it on Amazon in abundance. <laughs> All right, that was Steve Silver. Steve, if you're listening, thank you so much for being on the show. And everyone, tune in next week for the second half of my interview. All right, so if you want more podcasts to listen to, we have Real Paranormal Activity with Aaron Hunter on Mondays. I'm on Tuesdays. Terry's Mysterious Moments with Terry from Texas is on Wednesdays. And then the Sandman's Lullaby with Patrick Sean Jones is uh, usually on Thursdays. But it's a phantom cast, so you'll have to catch it whenever it appears. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and have a good night.